Ezekiel 1, the first chapter in the book, this marvelous prophecy by a glorious prophet, prophet who lived through great hardship, even seeing the death of his wife by divine design, a prophet who lived in great hardness. At the beginning of his ministry at 30 years old, he sees this remarkable vision. And the vision has such unusual details that if you are a good reader, you must immediately see that it requires you to imagine. And so this morning, I would like to speak to you on the subject of the Christian imagination. Because God is not honored by a man who falls into one of two errors regarding the imagination. Some do not use their imagination, and by neglect it rusts. Some use their imagination under the influence of sin, and so it is bizarre, demented, grotesque, and vile. But God would have us, even through this first chapter... To use our imaginations to exercise that muscle. Your mind is a muscle. It gets stronger with time. The more scripture memory you do, the more you'll find you can do. Sometimes people say, I'm not very good at memorizing. My thought is, I wonder if you've been memorizing for the last 10 years. The imagination is one of those human faculties that grows as we use it. But some time ago, I heard a coach say, don't ever believe that perfect, that practice makes perfect. Rather believe that perfect practice makes perfect. That is, if you practice something in a foolish manner, you may form habits that will make you a poor athlete or musician. And if you form habits of mind that are outside scripture for the imagination You may wonder when you're not able to identify the right kind of love. And there are many kinds of loves. There's a way to love ice cream. There's a way to love dogs. There's a way to love God. There's a way to love children. There's a way to love your country. And not one of those loves is the same. And if you offer the wrong kind of love to God... He is not only not pleased by it, but he he warns us that there is great danger on those who offer the wrong kind of love, which is why the first and great commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, and with all our mind, and with all our strength. Much of the Bible is history, and I would remind you that you cannot read history without imagining something of history. You have to have an imagination to think carefully about Israel, for example, or Moses in the burning bush, the crossing of the Red Sea, or Joshua setting up pillars, or Elkanah and his wife. You have to have an imagination for history to understand that Goliath is three meters tall, or that before the sacrifice was killed, a man had to place his hand on the head of the lamb or the ox. But it's much more than that. Try reading the Psalms and don't imagine. It's not possible. Our God is a rock. Psalm 1, 
He will be like a tree. Don't imagine that. And you won't understand anything. It requires the imagination. Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic scholar and the medieval church, medieval Catholicism, said, I'm not sure if this is true, but it might be true. But I want to open up a new category for you by giving you a line from Aquinas where he said, everything in scripture is a metaphor and therefore requires the imagination. Is it really true that everything? I'm not sure, but maybe. But a great number of things in scripture do require us to stretch out and imagine, to think and ponder. When David prophesies of our Lord and says, I am a worm. Isaac Watts later put that into a poem. The father of English hymnody. And then William Carey, the great missionary to India, put that on his tombstone. I am a worm. What about this line from Ecclesiastes? Don't be offended, ladies. It's in the Bible. I find more bitter than death the woman whose hands are chains. You can't understand that unless you imagine, but the words are so beautiful. They invite us. They pull us into the realm of pondering. And this pondering is the work of the imagination. And that's what's happening in Ezekiel 1. In Ezekiel, we learn in the first three verses the setting. Ezekiel was part of the deportation. Do you know what that is? Israel was in the land of Canaan. And after about 350 years, they called for a king. Samuel warned them and said, wait a minute, if you have a king... He's going to try to put his hands on everything. He's going to try to control everything. First Samuel chapter 8. He's going to overtax you. He's going to dominate you. Which gives us a theory of government, a philosophy of government, that the government should be small and the freedom should be great. He warns them up front and says, you are going to cry out for mercy if you want a king. But they did take a king. For three kings in a row... Israel is ruled by a single monarch. That is Saul. Who's after Saul? Tell me. After David, we have David's son. So those are the first three, and then the kingdom is divided. When the kingdom is divided, then we have 19 kings in the northern kingdom. That's called Israel. We have 20 kings in the southern kingdom, and that's called what? Judah. So we have the two kingdoms that are divided, and they're going to be divided for another three 190 years. Ezekiel is living at the end of that time. About 590 years before our Lord Jesus will, Jesus will be born. And here as Ezekiel is living, and the first and the second wave of Jews have been taken out of the land of Israel, now he's by a river in Babylon with other slaves, his fellow people, the Jews. And he looks around at them and thinks back to how foolish and wicked they've been. And that's when this vision comes to him. That's when the vision of these amazing angels comes to him. The first three verses show us the heavens were open, verse 1. Verse 3, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Again in verse 3, the hand of the Lord was upon him. This is God himself coming down and revealing something to Ezekiel. What we're about to see 
is God's revelation of himself to Ezekiel. Now, the words of Ezekiel's prophecy begin in chapter 2. And some people have the idea that the words are the most important or maybe the only thing that's important. But God wanted us to have 28 verses just painting the picture before the words. Did you know that if you don't even speak the language, you can learn a lot just by attending a church? You can find out the manner in which they fear God. You can hear even from the silence and the solemnity. You can see the jocular manner of the pastor, the trite and flippant songs, or you can see the overwhelming heaviness of the day because we have come before God himself. And that's what we see in the first chapter. This overwhelming weight of the person and glory of God himself. With that as a background, with that as an introduction, let me open up for you three points from this passage. The first point was read by our brother. And that is the angels. Begins in verse 4. It will end in verse 24. After the angels is a person who's revealed. And then finally, there's a response by Ezekiel. So if you're taking notes, you can follow logically through that way. It's the mysterious revelation of these angels, and then an even more mysterious person, and then the terror that comes on this prophet. And if I could summarize the message in one sentence, it would be this. God wants you to be filled with wonder, imagination, pondering, fear, and even terror. When you think about his person, his glory, his majesty. And so God paints this picture for us. And gives this revelation inspired by the Spirit of God to Ezekiel because every detail will, should do something to our minds. Let's begin with that right now. Before Ezekiel even hears the words, he's overcome with these sights and sounds. Imagine this in verse 4. And I looked. Thank God for eyes. And behold, a whirlwind came out of the north. A great cloud and a fire engulfing itself. Can you imagine that? You step outside after church and on the horizon is this cloud pouring out fire. Not the rain you hear, but another element. How, how can that be? And it's filled with color, the color of amber. That word amber is a little difficult to, to interpret. The lexicons call it molten metal. Some kind of amazing, shining waterfall? Bubbling pot? Some kind of metal inside this cloud, overwhelming with fire. These creatures are living in something like a storm. Fire and lightning are coming out from this. Look in verse 5. How many angels are there in verse 5? 
Hey, let's talk back a little bit. It'll keep us awake. It'll keep us lively. Make sure there's 28 verses to go. So keep looking right down at the Bible. We're in verse five. I'll tell you the verse every time, like signposts on the road so you won't be lost. We're in verse five. How many angels? Now the word four is used multiple times because these four angels have four wings and four what else? Four faces. Try painting that. The medieval painters did try to paint angels with four faces. It's an unusual painting when you see it. What would that look like? God wants you to say to yourself, I I need somehow to grasp after and to grapple with this. I know this. They're alive because 11 times, look in verse 5, you'll see the word living. The four living creatures, 11 times the word living describes them. No words are wasted in the Bible. It's an amazing economy of words. He wants us to know there's a kind of pulsating inner vibrancy, an animation that comes from these spiritual beings. Look in verse 5 again. They have the form of a man. Why would that be true? Because man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Man is the combination of an animal and a spirit, an animal body. I don't mean in any sense the foolish, ridiculous, backward, unscientific doctrine of evolution. Is my position clear on that or have I been unclear in any way? But the joining of an animal body with a spirit is the pinnacle of God's creation. Psalm 8 tells us that. And here God wants us to know that even the angels, when they're revealed, have something like this bipedal motion, this this, uh, form that would remind you of the form of a man. Verse 6, they have four faces. Verse 6, they have four wings. Verse 7, their legs are straight. So that must be, their, their, their motion must take place by their wings. Their feet are like calves' hooves. But their, their, their feet shine. They have human hands. Verse 8. But look at verse 9. They're very near to each other. Their wings are touching. Roger Scruton, the Anglican philosopher who writes books on beauty. And his book, The Aesthetics of Architecture, says there are three features that make architecture beautiful. Can you guess what they are? What makes architecture beautiful? There's three features. One would be an arch. The second is the pillar. And the third, according to Roger Scruton, it seems to make sense to me, is a colonnade. A colonnade is a row of some tall object. And Scruton makes the point to say, you need more than three to make a row. Ezekiel knew that before Roger Scruton. There are four of them to communicate there's a row. There's a bodyguard. There's a line advancing on you, Ezekiel. Advancing, yes they are, because they move. Look down in verse number nine. Does your Bible say the word went or moved or traveled? That word is used repeatedly throughout this passage. Living and traveling that's what these angels are. They're alive and they move. 
It's in verse number 9 twice. It's in verse number 12 three times. It's in verse number 14 that they ran or moved. Verse number 17 three times. Verse 19, 20, 21, 24. God wants us to know these creatures are alive. And he wants us to know they're not standing still. Except that their legs are straight. They're moving, but they cannot be distracted. This is remarkable. Verse 9. Notice that as they move, what happens to their faces? Their faces cannot be distracted. Would to God that we knew something of this. Can you imagine anyone in 2020 that cannot be distracted? Oh, just a moment. Let me take this call. I've heard pastors, seen pastors, take calls while they're supposedly preaching. We are in the age of distraction. The age of pocket computers where you can always be reached. And we're raising our children to be distracted. How can they even understand Ezekiel chapter 1 when we raise them to say, every camera angle changes after 3.5 seconds. If you have a TV, I'm sorry, but if you do, you can check one out. See if the camera angle will hold even for five seconds, even on the news. You watch the news, and we're just supposedly trying to learn facts, right? No way, it's entertainment. You can't even watch SABC report on, a, on COVID without them changing the camera angle every five seconds. Because we have been educated simply by the medium. Forget what's on it. Even religious broadcasting does the same thing. I have had the misfortune to once see the Trinity Broadcasting Network. And even while they broadcast and televise uh, what some people call pastors, the camera will change multiple angles. Why? Because it is the age of distraction, but not for these angels. And there is a message right there. I nearly preached the whole sermon just from that concept of focus. Possibly when we close the message, if you are a mom or a dad, you need to ask God, this is what I need to pray. It's found in verse 9, again in verse 12, and again in verse 17. Three times the angels do not turn their faces when they move. Hey, look here. No, they won't. Because whatever you're doing doesn't matter. Whatever I'm eating really doesn't need to have a picture put on Facebook. And my name, if you remember it or forget it, it's not that important. Because the river of time is going to move on, but those angels will still be there in their row, announcing to all who do stand before the great white throne, when the living and the dead will be raised, that matters and I don't. We are in the age of distraction, and these angels are unusually vital to us, and speak to us a very important message. Nothing in heaven is petty or trite or unimportant, which is why our churches should not say the message of petty or trite or unimportant, which is why our rhetoric when speaking, our tone of voice, the Bible that we use, the songs that we sing, the manner of our dress and movement and talking in prayer should say, there's someone and he is so terrifying that his angels don't even look at you as they pass by. Verse 10, they have four faces, a man, 
a lion, an ox. And what's the fourth one? An eagle. These four faces are the same that are found in the four living creatures in Revelation chapter 4. Reminding us that in the eyes of heaven, time is a dot. It is, if you can remember this, do you remember VCR tapes? When there was a roll of film, and in that roll, every uh, uh, brief interval was a new picture. And imagine if you could unroll the whole roll and look at all the pictures at the same time. That's what God does with time. And so back in Ezekiel's day, 590 years before our Lord, or in Revelation chapter 4, at least 2,000 years after he lived and died, God still looks at all of it the same and it hasn't changed. That's because the greatest things need to be conserved. And there again we see in verse 10, these are the same creatures before the cross and even into eternity that will be there. In verse 11, notice their manner. Their two wings are opened so that they touch the other creatures in this majestic row. And two other rings, wings are wrapped around their bodies in this kind of modesty and mystery. There's a glory to modesty that is mystery. And not only the human form, but the personal privacy that ought to be maintained. And all of that privacy and modesty that we have personally or in our families or in our culture, or in our nation, points and reflects back to the inner, hidden beauties of God. He does not reveal everything about himself. He does not show us everything. Even his servants hide a great deal of their form. In verse 12, they're guided by the Spirit. That's not the Holy Spirit, that is the angelic spirit of these creatures. These cherubim, they don't turn around. In verse 13, as to the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches traveling up and down among the living creatures. Stop right there. What do they look like? Fire. And if you look too close, it looks like there's fire flying and pulsating through their being. A traveling torch through the midst of the angel? Look closely if your eyes can bear it and you'll see their arms pulsing, their, their chest, their legs pulsing with fiery glory. We don't think that way, do we? We pass over this and say, oh, Ezekiel's hard. Let me get to the book of John. Verse 14, even more glorious. They're darting like lightning, rushing back and forth. These creatures move with amazing speed. Can you imagine what Ezekiel thought when he saw this? How could he even describe it? Verse number 15, each creature has a wheel. These wheels now will be described for a number of verses. And then again in chapter 10, a wheel. In verse 16, the color of the wheel is barrel. You can mark in your Bible that's green or blue. A green-blue color for these wheels. There are wheels within the wheels. 
And then look in verse 18. Your Bible may say rings or rims. The Hebrew word means curve. In verse 18, the the curvature of the wheel was very high. They're so high that the entire image is terrifying. You know what that's like because you live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. Have you ever seen something high that was glorious? Or have you seen it so many times that it's nothing to you? I'm just visiting this beautiful province and I'm amazed every time I step out the door at the enormity of these mountains. Something like that is what you will feel if you could see the curve of these enormous, what are they? Let's call them wheels. Some kind of spherical, curved feature that travels along with these angels. And when we see it, we will say, that is the most beautiful creation that could have been. And I don't know what to call it. Except I guess it's like a wheel. Verse number 19. These massive bluish wheels are filled with eyes. They carry other smaller wheels that terrify the human mind. They're in perfect step, perfect flight with the creatures themselves. When you hear that, you say, they're filled with eyes. And your thought might be a sacrilegious thought. You might say to yourself, that doesn't sound beautiful, or maybe even that sounds disgusting. But can I remind you that now that the secrets of the cell are being discovered, as molecular biologists are able to peer right down into the cell, your body is made up of trillions of little factories and unusually shaped organisms. And if you could somehow get down inside and see the creatures that are living inside of you and moving inside you, you might say, that's so startling. That's not me, but it is you. You just can't see it. Something about these eyes, these wheels within wheels, may even be the glorious molecular inner workings of the creatures. But whatever it is, when you see it, you'll say it's just right. Verse 20. The wheel is not merely decorative, but the spirit of the creature is in that wheel. Verse 22. There's something above the creatures. What is it? Verse 22. What's above the creatures? Something like an expanse, a firmament, the sky. An open area is above these creatures. It's glorious in verse 22. But notice it's the likeness of the sky on the heads of the living creatures. It's as the color of the terrible crystal stretched over their heads. So even looking at the sky in God's presence is terrifying. Verse 23, their wings are stretched out. Verse 24, their wings make a sound. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings. He's seen it with his eyes, now he hears it with his ears. In a moment, he's going to be touched. All the senses are involved. Our senses work very badly 
as a source of final truth. But our senses work very good as generally reliable. God sends important messages to us through our senses. He just doesn't send the final authority through our senses. Don't ever say, I'll trust my eyes completely. I'll trust my ears exactly. God has given us one thing that we must trust completely and exactly. It's his word. Our eyes and ears can sometimes be wrong, but they're generally reliable, which is why Ezekiel says, I hear this noise. It's like the noise of great waters as the voice of the Almighty. The voice of speech as the noise of a host. When they stood, they let down their wings. This is amazing. These creatures are called cherubs, cherubim, in Ezekiel chapter 10. Have you ever heard someone speak about a baby as, oh, that little cherub? They should read Ezekiel. These are terrifying creatures, glorious angels. These are the creatures that guarded the Ark of the Covenant. They were carved into the wall of Solomon's temple. But we still don't know very much about them. Even with the description we have here, which is one of the longest descriptions of any single creature in the Bible. It's longer than than the description of our Lord in Revelation 1. Why does he spend so much time telling us what these angels look like? And even when he's done, we still ask ourselves, what do they do? Well, we know they move. What else? What are these wheels for? We don't know that. How do they have four faces? We don't even know how they have four faces. How can that be? We don't know what a painting would look like. We don't know how large they are. We don't know what language they would speak. We don't know how fast they can move. We don't know if there are more than four. And all that reminds us that we are in the realm of mystery. And it is good for our imaginations to grasp after and then to bow when we reach our limit. Frederick Faber, the poet, said, Oh God, when my reason cannot comprehend, let me adore in silence. But at least he tried first to comprehend. Let us try and then adore. What other amazing creatures are there in the Bible? Do you know Isaiah 6? Do you know that story in Isaiah 6 with the... With the Um, seraphs, these angels who cry out, what do they cry? Holy, holy, holy. How many wings do they have? Six. Do you remember that story? That word seraph is translated or is written in your Bible as seraph. It's a Hebrew word. They didn't translate it there, but they did in Isaiah 28. They translated it as the flying dragon. The word seraph in the book of Numbers, it's translated as fiery serpent. And it's in Isaiah 28, it's fiery dragon. At the core, the word seraph means a serpentine form, a snake-like form. In Isaiah 6, these snakes are flying. What do you call flying snakes? We need to imagine... We have these tame views of here's a little girl who's 12 years old wearing a white robe. That's an angel. Try a fire-breathing dragon. 
Try a creature so large with four faces that flies like lightning, that pulsates fire. Our religion is far too tame. In Jude chapter 9, I'm sorry, in Jude verse 9, Michael is called an archangel and he is so glorious that he alone of all the creatures of God can stand toe to toe with who? Satan. He fought with him at least twice. In the book of Jude, one occurrence, and then again in Revelation chapter 12. Why can't there be many more? Why can't there be many more glorious things currently hidden to us? What does the word infinite mean? If God is truly an infinitely glorious creator, why would we think, well, I basically got it here. They've recorded all of his glories in a book. It's there at Stellenbosch. No, our imaginations are meant to soar. These angels are revealed to us so that our minds will be drawn out into ever higher thoughts. And when we reach the peak of our height, there we've just come to the foothills of the divine glory. Ezekiel took great effort to explain these things, which only took him moments to see. And yet the most amazing thing is beyond what we've even taken this time to describe. The reason God took 20 verses to describe the angels and only four verses for the man in the clouds is because he only reveals portions of the glory of his angels and even less of his own infinite majesty. But there is coming a day for all believers, for all who are born again, when he will reveal himself over and over in an unending waterfall of pleasure and ecstasy and joy and glory. That's the wonder of heaven. And if you want to go to heaven for any other reason, I wonder, have you ever seen God? Have you ever seen the beauty and glory of Christ? Do you know what? Peter speaks about in 1 Peter 1 verse 8 when he says, We who, not having seen him, love him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What's his joy for? He told us two verses earlier. He's going to see that glory. The joy of heaven is to see Christ. And not just in this hint that's given to us here. But to have every day of days there are. New revelations of the vastness of infinity. And if we don't know what infinity is, we'll have something of an idea when we experience moment by moment, experience after experience. I'm struggling here. Do I say day by day, minute by minute? One after another revelation of Christ's loveliness and wonder and beauty and glory. And the horror of hell is not only the terror that is described with the word eternal or the word fire, but it is that which is described outside of the beauty and wonder of God. If you are lost, you will never know the greatest of all pleasures. You will never know what it is to see these angels in any kind of pleasing way. You'll never know what it is to look above them to the firmament and then to the likeness of the man who sits on the throne. And that brings us to the man who sits on the throne. Look at verse 25. There was a voice from the expanse that was over their heads. This voice is coming from above them. When they stood, the angels let down their wings. Verse 26. 
And above the ferment that was over their heads, if you like to underline words in your Bible, circle or underline the word likeness, the likeness of a throne as the appearance, underline the word appearance, likeness of a sapphire stone. Upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man. How many times in verse 26? Five times he says, it's something like, it's an appearance, it's like, I I couldn't clearly get an image of it. It's again in verse 27. In fact, that word is used, those two words are used 13 times in these three verses. 26, 27, and 28. It's the likeness of an appearance of a man. It's the likeness of an appearance of a throne. What does that mean? It means God only partially reveals himself. You will remember, where are we at in our Bibles? What's the category that we're at in the Bibles? The Old Testament. He only shows himself in shadows. It's the likeness of the appearance of a man. But when we get to the New Testament, what do we see? We see the full light of the sun of righteousness arising. John Owen says in his book, The the Glory of Christ, he says the difference between our knowledge of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is so great that no one in the Old Testament could conceive of the beauty of Jesus in the New Testament. Are you with me? Which makes me puzzled as to how the man ever could be a covenant theologian. The distance between the beauty of Christ as revealed in the Old Testament and the beauty of Christ as revealed in the New Testament is so great that it would dazzle the mind of the Old Testament believers to see Christ. Are you with me? Follow this. John Owen goes on to say the difference of God's glory between what was revealed in the New Testament and what we will see by sight is infinitely greater. Owen's word, not mine. Infinitely greater in heaven when faith will become sight. Brothers and sisters, if you aren't living for Christ, if you aren't falling in fear of God, if your life is not mastered by God, you are of all men to be pitied. Especially if you have a Bible. Especially if you have children. And you say nothing to that little girl. That little boy to tell him there's something outside. What is the sea? What is the ocean? What is these pleasures you find? These are nothings. These are trinkets. It's like a three-year-old who takes a one-rand coin. If you offer him a hundred-rand bill, he'll take the coin. That's just paper, he thinks. He's actually right. It's our Federal Reserve that's tricked us. But how much more when Christ says, I offer you the... The pleasures of eternity, my eternal being, every pleasure you've ever experienced has been only drops from the fountain of his glory. And we say, I'll take the drops, no thanks, on the fountain. May God today open our eyes. May he cast us down in humility over not fearing and loving this God over not sculpting and crafting our minds to be able to think this way about him. Well, it's the likeness of a man, but he is a man in great authority because he sits above. He's doubly mysterious because it's the likeness of the appearance of a man. In C.S. Lewis's book, he was a British author, in C.S. Lewis's books, he wrote three books on fiction for adults, and in his first of those books, 
his story is about these angels who are ruling the planet Mars. And a man goes from Earth to Mars and he's trying to see the angels. And this is how Lewis describes them. I wonder if they didn't come right from Ezekiel 1. Lewis writes that angels are only visible as lights or suggestions of lights. The merest whisper of light, the smallest diminution of shadow. Could that fit with Ezekiel's description? He's looking at them, but they flash like lightning. You see it for a moment, it's gone. It's back. They're pulsating. Is that amber, molten metal, fire, something, lightning? They're moving. They don't, wait, they had faces. Catching the mere glimpse of this glory. But the one on the throne is even more glorious. His beauty is such a pleasure and a treasure that he does not give it out lightly. And that's one of the numerous things that is pictured in the modesty of our clothing. These things are too great to handle lightly. And it pictures even there the Christian worldview. There's something in God that's too glorious so we don't cast our pearls before swine. But if you're a sheep, then you want those pearls. You hear his voice. Verse 26. Notice verse 26. It says the last phrase, the likeness of the appearance of a man above upon it, the King James says. Perhaps your Bible says high above it. The New American Standard says high up. It's two Hebrew prepositions that say he's up, up. He's greatly raised. He can't be higher. He's a man like Ezekiel. And even now our Lord Jesus is a man. He took on flesh. And he has not left off that flesh. The new covenant is being revealed by degrees. By degrees, portions of his glory. Strokes of the brush. Strokes of the pen. Until slowly it takes shape. And even now we think we've seen it, but what will we see in eternity? In verse 27, you see that he has a clear waist, chest, legs, but they glow like burning metal. Again, in verses 27 and 28, there's a ray of rainbows shining out from him. It's a mockery of the divine order that rainbow is used these days for perversion of God's creation. Just like in Revelation 4, when the rainbow shines from his throne. And it reminds us that whenever men set themselves against God, whenever men set themselves against God's created order, it's not merely because they want to do things their way. It's because they hate God. The rainbow is a sign of his throne, not a sign of Psalm 2, the heathen raging. Will break off his cords and throw his bands aside. The one who sits in the heavens will laugh. But that psalm ends with these words, kiss the sun before he's angry. Because his wrath is very quickly kindled. This is the identity of this 
amazing vision. And we close with our third point. It's the final clause in verse 28. It's the terrified believer. When I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice. Three verbs there. He sees, falls, and hears. He sees this vision. And that reminds us, brothers and sisters, the goal of all true religion is to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will sing in the choir. No. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will be respected at church. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's the great goal of all religion. And Ezekiel reaches the great goal of all religion. He sees God. And when he sees it, he has this hope. 70 years of living by faith is a statement of the immeasurable value of God himself. It is hard to live by faith. And some of you know what that is because your family are not believers. Because all around you, you feel a pull back to the world. And you say, I don't, how can I grapple with this? Brothers and sisters, keep Ezekiel 1 in your mind and in your heart. Because if you see God, that will be the strength and, and sustenance you need to get you to the end. And you may not come to the end and say, well, I have an excuse it was so long and so hard. I got exhausted. No, he gave you the provisions. You didn't want to eat it. Even now he gives us Ezekiel 1 as a window into eternity. And we don't want to eat this. We say, turn on the TV. He sees this thing, this shadow of the Old Testament, when faith is Stretched even more than it is in the new covenant. I ask you, when have you last seen the glory of Christ? Ask yourself this, brothers and sisters, and you children. You are young, but God can minister to you. Have you ever seen the glory of Christ? Our Lord said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and for joy thereof hid and went and sold all that he had to get that field. For joy he sold everything to get the treasure. The treasure is Christ. If you have not seen something of his treasurable value, how can you say you're a believer? To we who believe he is precious, Peter says. When is the last time you've seen the glory of Christ? Do we not need to today say, oh God, forgive me. Forgive me for, for going so far from seeing the glory of Christ. Give me today a fresh vision of beauty. We go a year and then need a holiday. How long do you go before you say, I need that refreshing of the glory and beauty of Christ? Notice that he falls on his face. Verse 28. The fear of God is an essential component in saving faith. But we are 
racing, breaking the speed limit to move ourselves to a religion still bearing the name Christian that discards the fear of God. We remove the fear of God in every aspect of our culture. With our children, with our titles, with our every form that we have. This man, when he saw God, didn't dance. What did he do? Tell me, what did he do in verse 28? He falls. And he has to be lifted up in chapter 2. And that's not the only time. Even though he sees it in chapter 1, it happens two more times in the book. It's as if he says, I can't. It's too much for me. The weight is too heavy pressing down on me. He's a believer seeing God in mercy and kindness and he still can't bear the sight. And we think that if we see God, we're going to laugh and joke. If you see God or if you know a Christian or a pastor who has seen God, the evidence that he's seen God will be his great fear of God. When Ananias and Sapphira were killed in the church, the Bible says great fear fell on everyone and the unbelievers were afraid. Two verses later, people were converted every day. And that's not a surprise because 1 Corinthians 14, 25 says, if you're all speaking in tongues, they'll say you're insane. But if you're preaching the truth in a God-fearing manner, 1 Corinthians 14, 25, they will come in and falling down on their faces say, God is here of a truth. When the fear of God comes to an assembly, people are converted. When the entertainment of America comes to an assembly, the place packs out. Oh, you might find 5,000 people at your church if you bring over entertainment from the greatest entertainment producer in the history of the world. But if you want the fear of God, turn to Ezekiel. May God grant that we think about him the way he would have us to think. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, forgive us. Forgive us, dear God. Oh, Lord Jesus, stand up. We have not feared you and loved you and adored you. Grant that we might see the glory of Christ, even the likeness of the appearance of his glory. Show yourself to us that we might know you and love you and think much on you. Forgive us for not loving the Lord and grant today visions of him in his glory on the cross, in the tomb, throwing back the stone, ascending, praying for his people and returning on a white horse. Give us these visions that we might know and love our Savior. The converting grace might come to a child, an adult, someone who had been doubting. And grant to us who have been living by faith, but oh, how weakly we are as Elijah. We are tired and exhausted. Make us strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That we might fight against the evil strategies of the devil. Grant that we might lead sinners to Christ and fight with our flesh. Be pure and holy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.